Hello, I'm Jim White and welcome to It's Friday, your arts and culture guide to this weekend. Coming up, award season is in full swing, so we'll be picking through the winners, the losers, the best dressed and the worst behaved at the Golden Globes with our resident A-lister, Jackie Stevens. Amongst the worst, I would say Jodie Comer. I adore Jodie and she was absolutely brilliant in Killing Eve, but she came as the Green Triangle from Quality Street. <laughs> Plus... Do we need another World War I movie? There's a direct order to call off tomorrow morning's attack. If you don't, it will be a massacre. We will lose two battalions, 1,600 men, your brother among them. You think you can get there in time? And it's the long-awaited return of the teen heartthrob, Justin Bieber. Yeah, you got the But first, we love to hate them. Films so bad you can't look away or TV shows so cringy you have to hide behind the sofa. I'm talking about shows like Hole in the Wall, where we were treated to celebrities in silver catsuits falling into a swimming pool. The Fifty Shades of Grey film franchise that endured three whole movies, despite critical panning. I exercise control in all things, Miss Steele. It must be really boring. I'm incapable of leaving you alone. Symptom. I don't do romance. My tastes are very singular. And who could forget Touch the Truck? No explanation needed for what that show entailed. There's 20 contestants. There's one truck. The battle would last for days. Not Dale Winton's finest hour. But with so much great content out there, why do we keep coming back for more rubbish? Uh, joining me to pick through that knotty question is the Daily Mail's TV critic, Claudia Connell, who's seen her fair share of TV howlers, I'm pretty sure. Our resident film expert, Brian Viner, and Adrian Thrills, the Daily Mail's music critic. Um, Claudia, this week uh, we've been treated to The Masked Singer. Yeah. Uh, critically mauled, but bringing in surprisingly good viewing figures. Who's behind the mask? Take it up! Take it up! Take it up! It's our job, Unmasked at last! Former Home Secretary, the Right Honourable Alan Johnson. I watched it and Frankly, my jaw hit the floor and remained there for the whole program. Is this now a classic of the so bad it's good genre? I think so. It's it did at its peak. It got about six point five million viewers, which is is staggering. It was double what was on the other side on BBC One with the the greatest dancer. Um, it, yeah, it was. It was just really. Bizarrely mesmerising. I, I watched both episodes and I'm, so, I'm really hooked. So for those who haven't seen it, the whole idea is that we've got six or seven celebrities yeah. dressed up in <laughs> very elaborate costumes. Yeah. Queen Bee, the chameleon, the unicorn. Butterfly, yeah. They sing a song and there's a panel of experts who are trying to identify they who to. they are. Now, there's a real problem, it seems to me, with these, that uh, it's a celebrity show, uh, but there's a gap between what we're hoping for to, uh, the person we're hoping for but to be behind the costume in the, the likelihood. So the panel are all going, is it David Beckham? Well, of course it's not David no. Beckham. Yeah. I think one of them said, is it Meghan Markle? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Meghan Markle's bound to be on a celebrity <laughs> singing Palmer. show. But that, they know that. That's that, That's part of the fun. It, it's it's only ever going to be a C-lister in that costume. I mean, who, who's going to dress up as a duck on, on, on ITV <laughs> and, unless they were you know, really desperate? Adrian, this is a, a singing show, allegedly a singing show. 
singing show. Can any of these celebrities sing? We don't know who they are, but can they actually I mean, sing? You know, we say it's a singing show, but it's not really about the quality of the musical performance, is it? It's about the the pantomime and the kitsch quality of that show. Um, I think it's a slight shame, actually, that it slightly overshadowed the relaunch of The Voice, which also came back last weekend. And um, I was surprisingly impressed. I'm not a fan of talent shows, but I thought... I thought Megan Trainer as the new judge was a real breath of fresh air. I thought there were two or three really promising new acts there. Claudia, what's your favourite So Bad It's Good? I've I've got a few. I mean, you mentioned touch the truck. I did. I did. I do what remember. Was, what was? I mean, okay. touch the truck. Wait, is that what happened? That was, I don't, yeah, I don't so think I ever saw the, that. Uh, the very glamorous uh, setting of Lakeside Shopping Centre in Thurrock, <laughs> and so, yes, there was a truck and contestants, not celebrities, um, had to keep one hand on the truck at all times, and the person who kept their hand on the truck for the longest without falling asleep or wetting themselves um, won the truck. There are two rules. One, you must touch the truck at all times. Two, you cannot sleep. Feel it. Touch it. And that was it? That was it. Oh, yeah, that was it. Do you think that when these executives are sitting around, I mean, that sounds like an Alan Partridge format, doesn't it? But but when they're sitting around, are they thinking, this is so bad, it'll be good? Or do they actually genuinely think they've come up with a groundbreaking new format? Well, you've got to remember, I mean, that was quite a long time ago, but you've got to remember there was the the British tribe next door. That was only a couple of months ago with Scarlett Moffat. That got signed off by Channel 4, and that was that ended up being so bad and so pan that everybody watched it. And they, they thought that was going to be a, a brilliant social experiment. They didn't think that was bad TV. The Colby Durham tribe? Colby Now, British suburbia... Is it too early for a Prosecco? And rural Himba life... ..will exist side by side. I thought that was just... I I just thought that was bad. It it wasn't so bad it became good. Brian Viner, uh, I'm so glad you are in uh, this discussion. I just want to read out a couple of things. Oh, gosh. Um, This is from The Guardian. A jaw-dropping feline folly. This is from Empire. An insane musical experiment gone wrong. This is from The Telegraph. The only realistic way to fix cats would be to spay it. Brian Viner, on the other hand, said, Cats is downright demented, but somehow it works. You were the only critic, I think, who reckoned Cats had any... Almost the only critic, yeah. The the guy from the FT, I'm pleased to say. So I was in quite illustrious company and liking it, yeah, so... But um, but, but this was a film that was so bad. I mean, there are movies that get absolutely critically mauled, but still come out... Oh, uh, there smelling are. of yeah, roses. Yeah, many uh, of them. Yeah, uh, I, mean, I, I mean, I'm thinking, but maybe cats. We don't know yet whether that's going to do it. But the Greatest Showman was like that. Yes, wasn't it, it was. Yeah, absolutely. And I was one of those on that occasion who 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 panned it. Uh, I mean, it didn't pan it, but I, I didn't I didn't love it by any means. Uh, but it did phenomenal business. So you 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 never know. But you just put it out there as a critic, and you know that's your opinion. It's all subjective. Uh, but cats, you know, yes, I, I was, I was even on the ten o'clock news with my review, or you know, my, my review was uh, held up as an example <laughs> of you know, being out of step with the rest of the, the rest of the world. But um, yeah, I, I stick by it. You know, I think it was. Uh, I think if you if you went expecting to 
to be duped into thinking that these characters were actually cats, then obviously you know you were going to be sorely disappointed. But it's a you know it's a bit of froth. It's it's a it's a basically it's a ballet, isn't it? And uh, also I thought in those other reviews, and they are you know I have the highest regard for my counterparts on those other papers that you mentioned. That I have to I have to say, but um, I do think there was a little bit of Andrew Lloyd Webber snob or snobbery about dear old Andrew Lloyd Webber, who you know who who, who gets it right time after time after time, except where the critics are concerned, it seems. Tonight is a magical night, where I choose the cat that deserves a new life. The whole thing of of something being so bad it's good means that whatever it is that's bad is so mesmerising, as Claudia was saying, that you just have to, that you can't tear yourself away because you can't believe, in terms of films, that... You know, somebody could be so badly miscast or the acting could be so bad or the dialogue could be so trite. Um, so it's those things. And you just you're just absolutely compelled to see it all the way to the end. And I think I mean, there's a there's an old favorite of mine called The Conqueror. And I don't know if you've you, anybody. I don't know The it. Conqueror. The Conqueror was a 1956 film starring. John Wayne as Genghis Khan. Oh, hang on, I've got to that. see that. I've got to see that. And it included, this is my favourite worst line of, of risible dialogue ever in the movies, when he says to Susan Hayward, who plays his, his love interest, she's the daughter of the kind of the rival Mongol warlord, uh, say you're beautiful in your wrath. Um, and it's just, and dear old John Wayne, you know, cannot pull it off for the life of him. He just tries to play Genghis Khan as a sort of, you know, gunman from, from, from you know, striding down Boot Hill or whatever. Oh, it's so bad. I hold lead you across my lands. The chief's lands are those his men can hold with arms, Temujin. The market chief comes to dispute them. Were we alone, it would be easier, Tagotai. Your blood brother speaks in riddles. Tagatai is not so wanting in wit as he would let believe. Nor courage, Mongol, should you seek to challenge it. But you can't help but watch it to the end because it's that bad. Claudia, have you got any movie guilty pleasures that you return to, even though you know it's rubbish? Even that they're so bad, they're good. Well, actually, I did want to mention one other a TV one, um, which was a sitcom um, that I think people will have forgotten about. And it sounds like I'm making it up, but you please Google, this actually existed. It was a sitcom that was called Heil Honey, I'm Home, and it was made in 1990. And it was a comedy about Eva Braun and Hitler living next door to a couple, their, their neighbours who they didn't get on with, who were a Jewish couple called the Goldsteins. Heil, honey, me. What did I do now? Oh, tonight you were making schnitzel. What a joke. You must be real mad at me, honey. I'm a very, very bad Hitler. <laughs> and that, that got pulled after one episode. The, the smell, so, surprise, the smell of that one it, coming <laughs> yeah, down the, the wire. That, that was 1990. 1990. That was, was B-Sky B. Do you remember that? Yes. It was, and it was... It, one episode was broadcast. They filmed eight, but it was pulled after one. Adrian, what about records? Are there are there are there discs that get critically panned but still sell by the dozen? Well, you don't get so many actually bad or so bad it's good records. I think you have to kind of go back go back a, a little bit. Sad to say, another great master of the kind of so bad it's good is as old Macker himself. I think if you go go even back to uh, the heyday of the Beatles, I mean, Obladi Oblada, which was a song that 
John Lennon and George Harrison didn't even want on the album and uh, I think John tried to sing cartoon-like backing vocals to try and ridicule Macca's song smithery. Um, Paul McCartney, I mean, Ebony and Ivory, there's, he's, he's a kind of serial offender, actually, in the, the Frog Chorus. I mean, these are very well put together songs, but there's something, you know, irredeemably cheesy and saccharine about them as well. Claudia, Agent, <laughs> Brian, thanks for that. Leslie Garrett is the country's favourite soprano over a stunning career. She's performed all the finest opera roles. successfully crossed over into popular music. But more importantly, you've just finished in the new Wimbledon Theatre in Cinderella, <laughs> playing the fairy godmother. Uh, how was it being in Panto? I absolutely loved it, Jim. I can't tell you how much fun I had. It was it was a wonderful experience from start to finish. I was really keen to do Panto because, you know, it is such a quintessentially British form of theatre that actually feeds into all kinds of other sorts of theatre and I just wanted to have the experience of it I'd loved it as a child, I'd taken my own children to it. I don't know, it's been sort of revived a bit recently in terms of its style, we've got great people like Ian McKellen now, you know, doing doing Panto and, and giving it his wonderful sort of cred if you like not that I needed that because I've always believed in it but it was so interesting to find out more about the, the form and to find out about the incredibly careful balance that a good pantomime has to achieve between the singing and the dancing, between the storytelling and the variety that it has to be a part of it. On one level, it, it's, um, it's a kind of vehicle for, for variety performers. Uh, we had the most wonderful Pete Furman, who's a fantastic comic magician, who, and I still to this day don't know how he did those, those tricks. <laughs> they were so good. And I watched every night uh, but it has that has to still be balanced against uh, what is a, a, a story of wonder for small children it was just as important as any other work I've done and I approached it in exactly the same way as I would an, an opera uh, and studied the role and looked at the history of other people who'd performed that role and and what that role represents in the psyche in, you know of, the, of, a, of a child's imagination and uh, I, I I found it a fascinating experience. I mean, this year, now now we've entered 2020, I'm actually uh, going to be celebrating my 40th anniversary of, uh, of, of the start of my career. I started in 1980 in the Wexford Festival with a wonderful Handel role. And I decided I wanted to try something in my 40th year that I'd never done before because um, uh, I just thought, it, it, you know, it's nice to sort of, you know, reach 40 and still, still be trying 
new things. Um, and I couldn't have picked anything better than, than a pantomime, that, that and this an, pantomime in particular. That's an incredible uh, record, Leslie. 40 years on the stage. <laughs> um, that, I'm no, I'm no. Listen, I'm no expert on on, on operatic roles, but are, are, do they get harder to find as you get older as a soprano? Are there fewer roles yes. around? Well, they're all, it's almost impossible, especially for a light lyric soprano, which is what I am. Um, most of the, all of the roles, pretty much, uh, for my voice category, are young ingenue type roles. You know, they're the young lovers, the young sisters, the maids. Um, and I did all of those roles in the sort of first 20 years of my, uh, 20, 30 years of my career. Uh, because you have to cast credibly, especially nowadays when we're, you know, we're up against, you know, theatre and film and... Uh, in, in, you know, in terms of a, uh, of, of, uh, of a believable piece of, of, of drama. And so, you know, we have to cast credibly. And it's just not right to cast a person, uh, you know, in their, in their 50s in a role that's meant to be sung by a person in their 20s. So I, my career, as a result, very much diversified. And I, as, uh, you know, began to do uh, other, uh, other forms of, uh, of performing, uh, television, touring, albums, uh, and so forth, radio. Uh, and I was very lucky that I was able to to, to diversify in that way. But uh, I also did uh, quite a few musicals because I'd grown up with them. I was very comfortable with with that with that genre. And um, and I suppose a pantomime is another kind of musical, really. It's just a, with a particular style uh, attached to it. But. Um, I wanted to come back to opera because I really missed it. I missed the intellectual rigor. I missed the the discipline of it. Um, it it's a, it's a it's a it's quite a, a you know a, a disciplined and tough life being a really first class opera singer. Um, and I wanted to come back to that. And I went up to Opera North to ask if I if they'd take me back, as it were. And we discovered, as you were just saying, that there are there are almost no roles at all. So I started banging the drum and saying, look, if opera's going to be taken seriously as a contemporary art form, it has to reflect contemporary society. And, you know, these operas have no older women in them. And older women, as you know, are a very powerful section of, uh, of, of society. You know, we run countries, captains of industry we run the IMS for goodness sake so you know please start writing roles for for my voice category and my age and to my great delight several young composers uh, came uh, and said we w- really want to write for you uh, particularly Mark Simpson who, um, who wrote a wonderful piece called Pleasure for Me where I played a, um, a, a 60 plus year old toilet attendant in a gay bar <laughs> We watched your TV shows. We've heard your albums. We know you. We can write for you because, you know, we know what we're writing for and what your strengths are. (laughs) And and Leslie, is this just inherent sexism in the genre or or does the voice change? I mean, are you still able to hit the high notes you did 40 years ago? My voice has uh, matured, obviously. Uh, It's 
it's um, heavied up a little, so it's a heavier voice now. So uh, I can sing more dramatically than I used to be able to. I don't have the light, flighty Rossini coloratura that I used to have. That's uh, gone because my voice is, is heavier now. Uh, so it, it's changed um, as you know voices always do i think there is and, and so i have to i have to change with that and i have to change what i can do uh but i wouldn't want it any other way uh one of the the problems i had really with opera in the beginning was the idea that i'd have five or six roles that i'd take around the world and that would be all i'd do for the rest of my life i i found that prospect you know quite quite boring quite daunting in, in the fact that it would, you know the repetition of that would just make me bored so i'm very happy that as my voice has developed i've been able to do different sorts of roles you you, you mentioned <coughs> that you diversify one of the things you've done a lot of is solo tours and and in april uh, you're going to be on tour um doing a diva and a piano which suggests it's, <laughs> it's quite a, a small intimate uh, show that you'll be performing Yes, it's um, it's a, it's the sort of story of my life because you know if you've been around for forty years, you inevitably uh, have some extraordinary and very funny experiences, and I share these with the with the public, and I sing a lot as well. Each uh, little anecdote has a has a song that goes with it, um, uh, and and some of the the stories I tell are quite serious, but the major- vast majority are hysterically funny, and I tried it out uh, last year, and it seemed to go down very well. I took my uh, wonderful pianist with me, Anna Tilbrook, uh, who performs regularly on Radio 3 and all over the world, actually. Um, she and I are really good mates because we love cricket. In fact, she's in uh, South Africa at the moment because she actually goes and travels with them, so I'm getting regular bulletins. But uh, we all call her Anna the Piano, me and the Barmy <laughs> Army. <laughs> so she's she's the piano bit and I'm the diva bit. <laughs> will, we see you, will we see you singing Jerusalem again at, a, at an England... Um... Uh, test match as you have done in the past if it's anything to do with me yes you absolutely will Uh, I sang it last summer actually (laughs) with the Barmy Army at the Oval and it was absolutely wonderful because the minute I finished we took a wicket And then, you know, You're the talisman, a... Leslie. You've got to yeah. do it. You are the you are the person. You are the good luck charm. Was, the Barmy Army labelled me officially as a Barmy Army legend after that, and I was really, <laughs> really honoured. You know, I mean, next to my CBE, Barmy Army legend. That's that's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> Leslie, it's been great talking to you. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Now it's time for Hits and Misses, where our critics ignore the hype and tell us what they really think about this week's coming releases. Uh, First up, uh, Brian Viner, Daily Mail film critic. What should we be watching this week at the cinema? Well, without any doubt, 1917 is the the big release of the week. You have a brother in the 2nd Battalion. Yes, sir. They're walking into a trap. Your orders are to deliver a message calling off tomorrow morning's attack. If you fail... It will be a massacre. It is incredibly timely because it's just won a Golden Globe as best 
film and of best drama at any rate and also Sam Mendes won best director so the Golden Globes in LA on Sunday night so and were they right uh, is it oh i mean there were some other very good films being considered but um but yeah i think they were i mean it's it's a remarkable bit of filmmaking and it's it's beautifully done and it has a sort of level of poignancy because Sam Mendes based it on stories his grandfather had told him about stuff that he did during the first world war so it's all set in, on the on the western front in in 1917 and it's about these two lance corporals who are given the very important task of getting a message to the to to another division who are about to sort of blunder into a terrible german trap um, and they don't know, and they're they're led by Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, and Colin Firth is the general who who gives the order to these, who finds these two young fellows. But actually, Firth and Cumberbatch and Andrew Scott and these big stars are all in it, but only for a, a moment or two, really. Uh, and it's the two Lance Corporals played by George Mackay and Dean Charles Chapman who who are um, front and centre. And I think that. I like that because I think, and I'm sure this must have been deliberate, because it sort of shows that the true heroes of war are not the, the big names and the you know the big stars and the and the generals. The First World War starts with literally horses and carriages, and ends with tanks. So it's the moment where modern war, you could argue, begins. From the very beginning, I felt this movie should be told in real time every step of the journey, breathing every breath with these men, felt integral. And there is no better way to tell the story than with one continuous shot. Three, two, one, go! From the first moment I talked to Sam about the idea of it as a one-shot movie, I knew it was going to be really immersive. It's meant to make you feel that you are in the trenches with these characters. The film in itself is a slice of time. These two young men get sent on a mission to deliver a message to stop an attack. Action! So they've got to cross into enemy territory on a race against time to deliver a message that will save 1,600 lives. And the camera never, ever comes away from the two characters. There's always that sort of get out of jail card that you have with the movie. Well, you know, we might be able to cut around this or we might take that scene out. That's not possible on this film. What is also technically brilliant about this film is that it is shot in what appears to be a single take. Uh, so well, so the, it's real time. It is real time, and it's 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 quite incredibly immersive, actually, to do it like that. Uh, you might remember Birdman, which um, which was similar, but that was a, you know, that was a that was all within a, a theatre. But this this goes, you know, over miles of no man's land and through the German lines, and it follows these two guys through the trenches. It is it is brilliantly done, and and certainly Roger Deakins, who's the cinematographer, a very illustrious uh, veteran British cinematographer who. Uh, wasn't recognised by the Globes because they don't have a category, um, but the Oscars do, and I'm sure he's going to be right up there in the. Are, are uh, you contention. are you tipping it for uh, clearly I, a nomination? But do you the, think it might make? The, well, I mean, win the, the, the Golden Globes are uh, usually a pretty good indicator for the Oscars. So, um, uh, but the in the, the Globes they divide film categories. So they have best drama, but they also have best comedy or musical. Whereas in the Oscars, it's just best picture. So. So other things will come into play, like Joker and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and so I think I, my tip is probably that 1917 won't win the Oscar, but it 
It certainly could do. It certainly deserves to. It's a brilliant bit of filmmaking by Sam Mendes, who made Spectre and Skyfall, the two the two Bond films. And this is again about kind of British bravery and daring do, but but in a much more realistic. Not involving way than Aston there. Martins. No Aston I'm Martins to be seen. No, so no. hit or miss, Brian. Oh, huge hit, huge hit. Oh, and what else? What else have you seen? I saw a film, an interesting film called Seaberg, which is about the uh, American actress Jean Seaberg, who died, I think, when she was only 40 in what was probably a suicide, and that was about 1979. But this film is about, uh, is set about a decade earlier, and she is, although she lives in France and she's been a great star of the Jean-Luc Godard film Breathless, and uh, she's the sort of it girl of, of the French New Wave, but she's American. She's from Iowa, and she she goes back to Hollywood to make a, a film, and there she um, she falls in with the Black Panther movement, or at least she begins to subsidize to to, to pay them and subsidize them and support them. Uh, she's very active, and and you know what uh, these days might be considered woke, if you like. But she's but she's a you know she's she's doing her thing. She backs her her feelings, uh, but the FBI. Um, get onto her and they try to discredit her because the Black Panther movement is considered to be, you know, a, a danger. This country is at war with itself. Vietnam, the oppression of black people in America. It's the same disgusting racism. The revolution needs movie stars. Who's that? Some actress. Just grabbing some free publicity. She has a history of donations to civil rights groups. She's a sympathizer, sir. I think she could be useful. The film is about the surveillance that they attach to to Jean Seberg, who's played by Kristen Stewart. She's very good in the part, but it's a it's a very good story. It's a story that needs telling. I'm glad I now know it. I didn't know much about it before, um, but unfortunately, it's just the 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 dialogue's a bit clunky. Um, you know, she says kind of she speaks in cliches, and the Black Panther guy who she who she falls for and they have an affair, which again is kind of covered in, in really kind of horrendous, um, meticulous um, uh, invasiveness by the FBI. You know, they have, they have bugs everywhere even. Apparently, J. Edgar Hoover, who was the head of the FBI, said he liked to hear the bed springs creak. So you can imagine, you know, they get, they get in there and they, they plant these bugs and it's all terribly embarrassing and everything. And then when they think it's really going to discredit her, they... They um, managed to sort of plant news with various newspapers of the affair. So it's, it's, um, and she's married, and so that's all terrible. But, uh, but the dialogue is just a bit kind of clunky and cheesy, and it doesn't sort of, you know, you just sit there thinking, well, this, this is very interesting, but it could be better, really. Um, and so, so hit or miss. So, on that one. so uh, yeah, I'm going to have to say miss, which is a shame because uh, you know it's it's a story worth telling. Brian, while you're here. Little Women, you were the big champion of Little Women. I know yeah. you're a champion of the cats, so that doesn't necessarily I'm, I'm, mean you know I'm what you're talking you're, about. You're now restoring but, my <laughs> reputation, Jim. Yeah. But, but you're a big champion of that. But yeah. Greta Gerwig, the director, I thought it was beautifully directed yeah. as a movie. Yeah. Hasn't been recognised in any of the... Um, in any. She hasn't even got a nomination for no, for the BAFTA Awards. No. I mean, what's going on there? Yeah, sh- shocking, really. I mean, it's a... It's a I, I can't explain it, really. I can't explain it. I mean, and it happens year after year. Some very good films made by women don't get recognised. I just, I, I can't explain it. And, you know, it's in this particular instance, I mean, it was probably the film, certainly one of the top two or three that I enjoyed most in the last 12 months. I mean, I think it's, if anybody listening hasn't seen it yet, you know, get out and then, it's not, it's not a film just for women, uh, not a film for, for children. You know, it's just... 
absolutely delightful. I know you've seen it, Jim, and you loved it as well. I'm working on a novel. It is a story of my life and my sister's. Make it short and spicy. And if the main character is a girl, make sure she's married by the end. Ow, Joe! I want to be an artist in Rome and be the best painter in the world. That's what you want too, isn't it, Joe? To be a famous writer. Yes, but it sounds so crass when she says it. <laughs> girls have a way of getting into mischief. Well, so do I. You know, she deserves all the plaudits and all the gongs that we can throw at her, really. And, uh, you know, I just hope that the Oscars recognise her. Well, she uh, gets the It's Friday award, so let's hope that's... Well, that's uh, that, that'll have to be enough for now, yeah. yeah. And she'll yeah. love that, I'm sure. But yeah. Uh, yeah. She's got a nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. Yeah. Uh, that's probably about the, right, the, the okay. limit of it. Um, it looks a pretty sort of stayed selection there. I mean, yeah. they're, not, they're not exactly breaking new bounds. It's it's the Irishman, it's Joker. Uh, it, it seems to be fairly safe. I yeah, fa- fairly safe, but um, but there's a film in the, nominated in the Outstanding British Film category called For Summer, which is a um, which is a brilliant documentary and a little bit out there out there because it's it's even though it's a British made film, but it's a foreign language. It's it was made in um, Syria, so that is so it's good to see that in the in the contenders. On the whole, it's fairly safe. But then you know the, the most of the films are kind of obvious. You know, 1917 is in there, and it was brilliant. Sorry, we missed you, the Ken Loach film. Not a fan of all of Ken Loach's films, which I think are sometimes a little bit kind of didactic. And but that's a very very good film. And the Two Popes is in there, and that was that was brilliant Netflix film. Very very good. Yeah, so all the usual contenders. Tarantino is in there as best director, and Sam Mendes, of course, for 1917, which is rightly so, and, and Scorsese. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you can't you can't look beyond those guys. I think there would be hell to pay if people like that weren't in the in the list. Then one last tip: who who's going to win the movie, and who's going to win the best director? Do you I think, think it'll be. I think they'll follow the Globes. I think it'll be Sam Mendes, and I think it'll be 1917. They tend to go British if they can, yeah. don't they? At the Baftas, sometimes, yeah. They, they 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 well, they should, I think. And in this instance, I think they will. Brian Viner, thanks very much indeed. Agent Thrills, Daily Mail's music critic. What's there on your turntable this week? Well, the first big musical event of 2020 is the long-awaited return of Justin Bieber. Whoa. Get the bunting last, out. His last... Uh, the cherubic Canadian, yeah. His, his last um, studio album, um, Purpose, was five years ago. And that was a really good record. It kind of signalled the move from kind of cheesy, teeny pop into something a bit more mature. He worked with some interesting collaborators, the American DJ Skrillex. And he really updated his sound and he without losing his, you know, he's got a very good voice and he kind of still kept that kind of silky, supple quality, but also modernised it a little bit. And it really kind of gave his career a real boost. Uh, and that was five years ago. I mean, in, in the time since, he hasn't exactly gone away. He's been touring and also he's engaged in some really interesting collaborations. He, quite often what happens with, with Bieber is he'll, he'll identify a rising star or a kind of a, a big hit in the making and then he'll guest on the remix. So he he guested on the remix of Despacito, the, the Latin hit that's one of the kind of landmark singles of the of the past decade and uh, he kind of took that to another level globally. Last year he sang on a remix of 
Billie Eilish's Bad Guy, which is another really good record. He's guested on a country song called 10,000 Hours with um, Dan and Shay, and just generally kind of, you know, expanded his palette by, by kind of doing all these little side projects. But, uh, but he's finally back with a, with a new record, the enticingly titled Yummy. And, um, <laughs> and it, is it? it it's it's not not that yummy in my book. No, the, the lyrics go like the, the lyrics. Uh, obviously, he's, he's just he recently married his model wife Haley Baldwin, and I think this is very much a song of uh, of a newlyweds contented honeymoon period. And uh, he just sings the praises of her because she's got the yummy yum, the yummy yum. Yeah, you got the yummy yum, the yummy. And um, it's it's rather a bloodless kind of return from from a singer who who I think is probably capable of a, a little bit more. It's a very it's it's not much of a song. It doesn't really go anywhere. And uh, I mean, Justin's career it's been a kind of series of of peaks and troughs. Really, I think when he's good, he's very good. I do remember seeing him at the uh, the V Festival in Chelmsford um, or London, as he continually referred to it as um, a couple of years ago, and that was a really lacklustre performance, as if he was kind of just phoning it in. And I'm afraid this one is kind of along along similar lines. It's so, a bit of a. So are we going to mark 2020 I for Justin Bieber with a hit or a miss? It's, it's an underwhelming miss <laughs> with the uh, proviso that you know maybe you know an underwhelming single doesn't necessarily mean the album is going to be that bad. I thought. Taylor Swift, her her return last year was launched with uh, with me, which is a really kind of not particularly good single, but it was a really good record. The album that followed, so so maybe you know I wouldn't write them off just yet, but but I'd say this one's a miss. So if that's a maybe, anything you've been listening to that you're a bit more positive about? Yeah, there's a really good new album out today by um, a British electronic singer called Georgia. Um, and she's the daughter of a guy called Neil Barnes, who was a member of a, a 90s electronic act called Leftfield. Their moment in the sun was they provided the soundtrack to the, the iconic Guinness ad, the one with the horses surfing. Oh, yes, and, yes, um, I do remember that. Kind that. Of really kind yep, of pulsating yep. electronic music behind that. That was that was Leftfield. Um, but, uh, yeah, Neil's daughter, Georgia, she, she put out a very lo-fi DIY record, again, about five years ago. And she's she's laid low a bit since then, but she's now back with with her second album, and it's a really strong electronic, modern electronic pop record. Leans a little bit on Chicago House and Detroit techno, but there's some her songwriting's really come on in leaps and bounds, and there's some really good pop stuff there. It reminds me a little bit of the Swedish singer Robin, who again would kind of marry that sort of really strong dance sensibility with a lot of kind of nice melodic pop in there as well. I think it's a really strong record. It's called Seeking Thrills, so nothing wrong there either. And, um, <laughs> it's named after you. Yeah, I think that's ab- absolutely a hit, a nice hit to start the new year.
Now the last of this week's hits and misses uh, with what's coming up on TV. Uh, Claudia Connell, Daily Mail's TV critic, uh, what should we be setting our... I was going to say setting our videos for. We don't no, do that nobody anymore. Does that no, anymore, no, sorry. No. What should we be streaming this week? Well, tonight is the Channel 4's first big drama of the year. It's uh, Deadwater Fell. This stars David Tennant, and it's um, it's four parts, which is I, I like that. I'm getting a bit fed up with these series that go on for about twelve weeks. So four parts is good for me. Um, I've watched the first one, and and this is a really good, really promising drama. Last night, something very sad happened. What did she do? This was locked. She had issues. I got her help. Did you see she had it in her to do something like this? Did you? David Tennant plays a GP called Tom and he and his wife, she's Kate, she's a primary school teacher and they live in this idyllic village in Scotland and they have three little girls and tragically there's a fire at their house and he's he, Tom, David Tennant, is the sole survivor and the, the, the three children and the wife all perish in the fire and it quickly becomes clear that it's, it's arson and that everybody was drugged. Everybody that was in the fire was drugged. So it then becomes a whodunit, mm. who who started the now, fire. That sounds very familiar to the movie Manchester by the Sea, which, spoiler alert, uh, that's what happens in that. But, oh, I um, did see that. I yeah. forgot about that. And it's, it, it then becomes a bit of a... It's sort of a small community, so there's lots of curtain twitching and lots of gossip. And in the first episode, you find out that what somebody in the couple is having an affair, somebody's being treated for depression... And it's yeah, it's, it's just it's very well done, and it's really it's really well acted. I find Tennant a very compelling actor. Yeah. Um, he, so he's he's, he's on, on top form, is he? Yes, he is. This is really good, and it's um it's actually it's the village is is beautiful. So I, I looked up where it was shot. It's shot in um, a place called Dunlop, which is in East Ayrshire. I think they're going to expect a big boom in in the tourist industry this summer. So a hit or miss? That's that's a hit. And what else have we got? Well, coming back on on Monday is is Cold Feet on ITV. I mean, you'll remember that this started in in 1998, Cold Feet, and it became a bit like the British answer to Friends. It was about three uh, three couples that were set in Manchester, and they were twenty somethings when we first met them. And then it was it was on our screens for about five years, and it was very popular. And then it went away for thirteen years, and they brought it back in twenty sixteen. And this is the fourth series since it's been reintroduced. And um, it's they're all they're in their fifties now, these couples. And I, I just find that I, I just don't really care about them, and they're just they're not likable at all. They the writers haven't really developed the characters very well, I don't think. They're 50-something they're, they're with teenage children. It's like they're sort of teenage children and more mature than they are. <laughs> and they also live in... I know that feeling from yeah. our household, quite frankly. <laughs> in these fabulous houses, but no one ever seems to be at work, which is another head-scratcher as well. I liked it originally. I, and when they The first series, when they brought it back three years ago, I thought, actually, it's OK, and then it's got steadily worse. So you're not um, I'm, thumbs yeah, up or down on this I'm one. Reluctantly, I'm going to say that this is a miss, yeah. What about the Christine Keeler thing? Do you like that? I've, I'm kind of... Where are we? About halfway through that now, aren't we? I have been watching it. Actually, we, we were talking about Little Women with the time jumping and how it works there. I feel it really doesn't work in, in the Christine Keeler thing. It's, I'm finding it really confusing, the time jumping in that. It's essential to entirely frank with me. The government won't survive another scandal. I give you my word. There was no affair. You're 19 years old. Innocent. Lord Astley has denied that intercourse took place. Well, he would, wouldn't he? Friendships you thought would last forever vanished. Oh, 
In Little Women, as Brian has said, the Greta Gerwig sort of uh, gives you credit. There's not little captions that come up to tell you what point of the story it's at. Uh, So in in the Christine Keeler, there's no captions either? Sometimes there is, yeah, but then sometimes there's not. You just have to sort of assume, well, okay, well... And can you work it out on haircuts? Because I did that in Little Women. Oh, right, okay. No, I don't think you can. And also I'm finding... um, What's his name, the actor Norton, James Norton, the the little baby thing. You know, there's now a a, a Twitter little baby game, a drinking game. You have a drink every time James Norton says little baby. And and are you very drunk by the end of episode? Absolutely slaughtered at the end. Right, right. Okay, so I'll avoid that. Yeah, yeah. Well, now you know what's worth seeing and really what isn't worth getting out of bed for. My thanks to Brian, Adrian, and Claudia. Now let's find out what they're gossiping about on the other side of the Atlantic and who better to tell us than the male's own Jackie Stephen. Jackie, the Golden Globes. I assume you were there, weren't you? You you must be the first name on the invitation list, aren't you? (laughs) I was indeed there. I didn't go to the actual event, but I went to a pre-Golden Globe party and I met uh, various people there, which was very exciting. I met Quentin Tarantino, which was one of the highlights of my life. How fantastic. Everyone over here is talking about Ricky Gervais's presentation, particularly his opening monologue. Um, Has that been equally well received in, in the States? I think that people were genuinely shocked at it. It was inevitable because it's Ricky. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And he was absolutely right. You know, people standing up there talking about the Australian bushfires, which is a a terrible tragedy. And yet they're there in their three million pound jewels and, you know, spouting forth about the usual political things. And he said, you know, you don't know anything about real life. And that's absolutely true. I thought he was absolutely hilarious. My favourite line was when he said about there were a lot of paedophile movies this year and he named the two popes, which I thought was great. <laughs> yeah, he, he was very close to the bone, wasn't he? I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio seemed to come into He said even Prince Andrew has commented on Le- the age of Leo's dates. Um, <laughs> it was a big year for paedophile movies. Um, surviving R. Kelly, Leaving Neverland, Two Popes. <laughs> Shut up. Shut up. I don't care. I don't care. The Irishman was amazing. Long, but amazing. Um, it wasn't the only epic movie. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, nearly three hours long. Leonardo DiCaprio attended the premiere, and by the end, his date was too old for him. So, I mean, he gets away with it, doesn't he? Well, he does get away with it because, as he says, he doesn't care. And I did laugh at uh, the guy who came on stage and said, there's a low Ricky keeps saying that he's not going to do it next year. And he said, can we have that in writing? (laughs) Which was very amusing. But it was, um, I I love award ceremonies. I thought this one was a little bit too long. But some of those costumes, oh my goodness. Who's was best? Come on, name names. Who, who was best? Oh, right. Well, Charlie's Theron. I thought she looked absolutely stunning. I mean, she's a beautiful woman anyway. Amongst the worst, I would say Jodie Comer. I adore Jodie, and she was absolutely brilliant in Killing Eve. But she came as the Green Triangle from Quality Street. <laughs> she looked very, <laughs> that, very Isn't odd. that the one that's always left at the end because nobody wants to eat it as well? Oh, no, people like the Green oh, Triangle. They? Like, they like the big purple one. 
and the toffee one. They're the only three that anyone likes in Quality Street. Yeah, but it's the not, it's not a good look for a dress, is it? Whether, whether it's, uh, it's well not. She, she was so not. covered up. She was like in the whole triangle. And then Billy Porter uh, from Pose arrived uh, with a pet goose attached to him. Really, really Seriously? odd. Just to, like the longest one that wasn't really a pet goose. I'm calling it a pet goose because it was the longest train of feathers you've ever seen. <laughs> How he didn't have an accident, I have no idea. Well, I, I spoke to De Niro uh, briefly, but his heavies are so bad. All of these people come armed with the heavy people, saying no photos, no photos. And Tarantino was very nice, actually, because they were trying for me not to take a photo when I was talking to him. And he said, come on, she's asked nicely three times now. So I had a photo taken with him. Elton's people were very heavy, so no photo with him. I do have a picture of Robert De Niro's shoe because I was pushed out of the way, but that's all I could get of him. Um, uh, Dangerous thing to push Jackie Stephen out the way. Dangerous. Yeah, quite. They won't be doing that again in a hurry. Now, interestingly, the BAFTA nominations have just been announced and De Niro isn't nominated yet again. He wasn't nominated as Best Actor for the Golden Globes and he also isn't nominated for a BAFTA. Now, I think it's because he's not that good in it. I think The Irishman should have been up for Best Film Not in the English Language because I can't understand a word he's saying in it. It's also up for a BAFTA for best editing. Well, where were her scissors? Because quite frankly, an hour could have been cut out of that film. It doesn't seem to me to have had ed- any editing whatsoever. Disappointingly for me, because I hated the movie, the Joker has 11 BAFTA nominations. Well, uh, I hated the film. I didn't like the performance that much. Uh, it's a nasty, nasty film and not a very good film. Uh, but I suspect with the BAFTA voters, I know a lot of people don't actually watch the films. They've probably voted on the strength of the reviews that they've read. People often wonder what um, effect it's going to have winning a, a Golden Globe. Does it, it strengthen your chances in the Oscar or does it undermine them? What do you think? I mean, is the Golden Globes a better kind of barometer of where the Oscars are going than the BAFTAs? It doesn't really make much difference to the Oscars, to be honest, because the Golden Globes are voted on by the Hollywood Foreign Press. And as Ricky said in his opening monologue, they do tend to be racist. Many talented people of colour were snubbed in major categories. Um, Unfortunately, there's nothing we can do about that. The Hollywood Foreign Press are all very, very racist. So... (laughs) (laughs) And sexist. And I think he said homophobic. Uh, The fact that there were no females up for Best Director sort of says it all, really. Well, it does. It does with Greta Gerwig. We've spoken about Greta Gerwig before. And, you know, she's won our award, the It's Friday Award for Best Director, but she's not been nominated anywhere, which seems bizarre. Well, I hated Little Women. Oh, did you? Uh, Okay, well, we'll move on then. No, it was the most boring film I I saw. That's why she's not been nominated. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But the BAFTAs are very, very different again. You know, you can never tell. Then we'll have the Producers Awards and then the Directors Awards. What was very interesting about the Golden Globes, and I think it bodes quite well for the Oscars, is 1917. Now, we spoke on here a few weeks ago, and I did say then that suddenly there was a buzz around that film, the Sam Mendes film, and he won two Golden Globes. And a lot of people are also now talking about Parasite. A lot of people think that it will win not only Best Foreign Film, but they also think that it's written with a real chance for the Oscars, if you can get past the whole subtitle thing. So you've mentioned that they are or maybe aren't an indicator of what happens at the Oscars. But the really important question is, which is the best party, uh, the Golden Globes or the Oscars? 
Oh, it's always the Oscars, uh, if, if, if you can get into one. Uh, even a lot of the actors can't even get into one. But you see, Harvey Weinstein used to throw the best party, but now he's not around. Everyone's sort of a bit up in the air. They don't really know what to do. You can even get into Soho House now because Harvey's party isn't happening there. And it, I find it quite interesting that he's up in court this week for the various sexual offences. And it must be very difficult for him. I'm not condoning his behaviour by any stretch of the imagination, but it must be quite hard for him to be looking at awards season now and how the great have fallen. And he did the most arrogant statement a couple of weeks ago. There's quite clearly still no remorse there. He still thinks he's done nothing wrong. And it must be incredibly painful for him to be watching all of these awards now and knowing he's not a part of it when he was such a big player but couldn't have happened to a nicer man and what about what about the other (laughs) way around jackie is he the kind of ghost at the the feast uh, of the golden globes were people talking about him or was he deliberately ignored in conversation oh deliberately ignored and i think that that's why ricky's comment about him was so interesting one of the movies that ricky commented on he said it was about people turning a blind eye to what was going on and he said a bit like working for harvey weinstein which is absolutely right now he got booed in the audience for it but He's right. He's pointing out that all of these people knew what he was like and yet did nothing about it. And then it was, oh, shock horror when it all came out. But everyone had known for years. His behaviour was... uh, He was allowed to carry on with this terrible behaviour. So do you think that there are people who, as Ricky uh, Gervais uh, suggested in his opening monologue, are actually living in trepidation of a knock on the door at any moment? Oh, I think they must be. The casting couch culture has been in Hollywood since time began. And I think a lot of people are worried now. I I think that it's changed and it's changing, but it still happens. And I think there are probably a lot of nervous women out out there as well who have participated in the casting couch culture. And a lot of people now, I think, are turning around and saying, oh, gosh, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. So what's your next party? Oh, I haven't got any parties coming up now. I'm a bit partied out. I came back to New York yesterday after uh, the whole Golden Globes thing. The party that I went to in Los Angeles was the BAFTA party for the pre... It was a pre-Golden Globes BAFTA party. Uh So there were quite a lot of Brits there. And I met Taryn Egerton, who plays... Elton John in Rocket Man. What a lovely, delightful young man. Absolutely adorable. And uh, he was born in Aberystwyth. Oh, uh, he's got to be nice then. He's got to be nice then. Yes, he was. (laughs) Jackie Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. And that's it from It's Friday this week. Thanks to all my guests and thank you to you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at itsfriday at mailplus.co.uk. We'll be back next Friday and every week with your Mail Plus briefings at mailplus.co.uk. But for now, I'm Jim White. Goodbye. 